Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Well, good afternoon, brethren. It's wonderful to be back. And uh, thank you, Brother Ray, and uh, example of perseverance. We appreciate that. Brethren, if you lived in the UK in the 70s and 80s, then you would recognize the name Michael Fish. Michael Fish was a renowned weatherman, a real weatherman in England. In his bio, it says here that he was schooled at Eastbourne College and City University London. He was the longest-serving broadcast meteorologist on British television. Goes on to say that he was awarded the MBE. The MBE is the most excellent order of the British Empire. He awarded the MBE in 2004 for his services in broadcasting. Unfortunately, these wonderful credentials are not what he's known for. Today, if anybody, if you spoke to anybody in the UK and you mentioned the name Michael Fish, what they would remember is this. October 15th, 1987, when he came on the television to give his weather forecast, he said this. Earlier on today, apparently, a woman rang the BBC and said she had heard there was a hurricane on the way. Well, if you're watching, don't worry, there isn't. Later that evening, the worst storm to hit southeast England in 300 years struck, and 19 people lost their lives. This is what Michael Fish is now known for. If you go on YouTube or or Google and you type Michael Fish Weatherman, this is what comes up. In fact, there's a, a, a term now called the Michael Fish moment. And it's where you predict something and the opposite happens. That's the Michael Fish moment. So all of these credentials that this man had were lost because of his arrogance and his inability to foresee this massive storm that was coming. I think we find ourselves in a very similar situation. Since 2015, we have been looking into prophecies that tell us that a terrible storm is coming. At the same time, people with very great credentials have been saying we have nothing to worry about. Don't worry. Everything will be fine. We need to decide who is right. The people with the long credentials in official positions or the little old lady that's calling in saying, I think there's a hurricane coming based on the Bible. Let's turn to Second Peter 3. As we turn there, We're here 
because we believe the Bible. We know that God's word is true. And it doesn't matter who is telling us what God's word says. We see past the messenger and we believe God's word. So if we know that a storm is coming and that people are going to lose their lives, and others say, oh, Michael Fish said, nothing to worry about, so I'm not worried. But we know the storm is coming. It begs the question. The question here in Second Peter, which we heard uh, Daniel quote earlier, Second Peter 3 and verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. So when God promises something, it's good. He's going to fulfill his word. As some men count slackness. Rather, he is long-suffering to usward. So the the longer this all takes to be fulfilled, it's a mercy, or it should be, a mercy and a benefit to us. Not willing that any should perish. So it's an opportunity for us to get our lives in order. And to help and to encourage others to get their lives in order. So this is how we should see this time. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I appreciate Brother Dylan's uh, study earlier. And, and just wonderful to see you, Brother Dylan, now teaching. The student becomes the teacher. And I think that's a, a, an example for our youth. You're now the students. You will become the teachers. And so it goes. but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come, it will come, as a thief in the night. It's going to surprise a lot of people. The same way that hurricane, October 15, 1987, caught so many people off guard, while the official position was nothing to worry about. It's coming as a thief in the night. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. So when we read this verse 10, it sounds so far away. It sounds somewhat fictional. Telling me the whole earth is going to be burned up and the heavens are going to pass away and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Sounds a bit theoretical. But it's going to come. And it's going to come suddenly. And we, who believe in God's word, know that this is going to happen. And so it begs the question. Seeing then, verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. So all of these things shall be dissolved. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Everything. Seeing then that all these things, all the things that the people of this world are striving so hard to to consume and to obtain. We know that all these things shall be dissolved, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct? Uh, Brother Ray sang about Jesus is the way, the way of life. What, What should our way of life be, given that we understand these things and godliness? And so that's what I want to explore in the sermon today, brethren. Given the, I would say, advanced knowledge that we have, we've been looking at prophecy for a few years now, and given this advanced understanding that we have, is it so that 
we can say, I told you so? Is it so that we can say I was right all along? Or is there something else? Should this knowledge actually have an impact on us, how we behave, how we engage others, how we engage each other? When we formed our little congregation, we put together a roadmap. And that roadmap really defines who we are collectively. And, and, you know, we have the benefit of inertia. And inertia is not always bad. Inertia can be good. So when we set the ball in motion, it keeps going in that direction unless there's a force to change it otherwise. So there are some things that we set in motion in our roadmap, and I think over the next few months uh, we want to revisit this and remind ourselves of, of what we said was in our roadmap and our direction and our vision, but in the guiding principle. We, we said we're going to have a guiding principle that would underlie every decision that we make. And that guiding principle says we ought to know how to behave ourselves in the house of God to make our congregation the safest place for worship. So this is something that everybody here should know. It's just we know how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. This was taken from 1 Timothy 3, verse 15. Let's turn there. 1 Timothy 3, the Apostle Paul is writing to his son Timothy, and he says in verse 15, but if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So this verse was part of a letter that Paul was writing to Timothy. And, and the verse actually begins with, but, but if I tarry long. So there was something else. And then he said, well, if I don't make it, at least you'll know this. We need to go to verse 14 to see the something else. In verse 14, he says, these things write I unto you hoping to come to you shortly. So I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you shortly. But if I tarry long, if I'm delayed, at least you'll know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So as we have this in our foundation, that we ought to know how we should conduct ourselves in the house of God, and we took it from this letter, what I'd like to do for the sermon is just examine the letter and examine what these things are. What are these things that Paul was writing to Timothy to say, well, I'm hoping to come to you shortly, but if I don't, you have these things. And with these things, you know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. So let's go back to the beginning of the letter. And I just want to pick up three, three things from this letter that we should not only take under advisement, but we should wholeheartedly pursue because our understanding of how short the time is. 
In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 1, he begins the letter, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope, unto Timothy, my own son, in, in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord, as I besought you to abide still at Ephesus when I went into Macedonia, that you might charge some that they teach no other doctrine. So we see here an instruction around faithfulness to doctrine. And that one of the things that he's writing unto Timothy is to ensure that no other doctrine is taught. That Paul is very concerned that if false doctrine creeps into the church, it will devastate the church. It'll change the church's behavior. It'll change the church's conduct. And so he wants Timothy to be very careful. While he's in Macedonia and he's left uh, Timothy at Ephesus and he warned the Ephesian elders. And now he's telling Timothy to charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. So, you know, we're coming, we're in a time now where there's lots of fables. A lot of fables. If you caught the Bible study on on Wednesday night, uh, what I was saying in, in Luke 16, the second half, was the power of the storyteller. That to me, The storyteller is the most powerful person on earth. The the storyteller is more powerful than the man with a gun or a sword. Because it's the storyteller that inspires the man to pick up the gun or the sword. And it's the storyteller that inspires the man to put it down. It's the storyteller that controls behavior. And so what we need to be very concerned about are the stories. What are the stories that are programming people? So the issue for us that we're seeing with this whole uh, Islamic invasion of Western civilization, it's not the Muslims. The Muslims are not the problem. And I saw some post on Facebook today, which was nasty. It was nasty. Calling Muslims cockroaches and all kinds of horrible things and curse words. And I just had to say, brother, Muslims are not the problem. The problem are the fables that people believe in. This is, this is what we must tackle, not the person, the fables. And so we have to have uh, groundedness and a very deep understanding of, of biblical doctrine so that we can knock out these fables. And certainly we're going to see fables try to enter in the church. And we need to be able to stop that. Verse 5, now the end of the commandment is charity out of a pure heart. This, this is the whole purpose. Uh, Christ said, by their fruit you shall know them. So this is actually what we're looking for. We're looking for charity, agape, out of a pure heart and a good conscience and of faith unfeigned. This is what we're looking for. The, the teachings of God should result in this behavior. This is what we should see. If somebody's coming to us and teaching us things that result in hostilities, that result in lustful behavior, that result in covetousness, we're going to call them. That's false doctrine. Good doctrine, good teaching, 
leads to agape out of a pure heart. From which, some having swerved, have turned aside unto vain jangling. That happens, brethren. That people can be in this way and then swerve and turn aside. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor whereof they affirm. So Paul had a level of understanding that others thought they shared that level of understanding and they knew nothing. They were actually stupid. They were spiritually stupid, but they wanted to be teachers. They saw themselves as something. And this has ever been. This is, this is the way it is with men's egos. So people will always desire to be teachers, but they don't understand what they're talking about. If they understood what they were talking about, the end result of their teaching would be agape out of a pure heart. That would be the end result. But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. And actually, this is uh, what I posted on the Facebook post when I was telling them Muslims are not the problem. As we read these verses, Muslims are guilty of all these things because of their doctrine. And we engaged in these things as well. But because we have the doctrine of Christ, we have escaped these things. But without the doctrine of Christ, we'd be right here. We would be right here. Satan doesn't care how he gets us here. He just cares that he gets us here. We know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. So there is a place for the law. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. The law is not for the righteous. It's for the unrighteous. So when we look at people who are unrighteous, we realize they need the law. We don't look at them and think that we're better than them. We don't look at them and think they're cockroaches and we're something great. We look at them and we see ourselves. Except we have the law. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. So the fables, the stories that we tell, give people permission, even excitement about killing their fathers and killing their mothers. They're just people. They have the wrong stories in their head. They're following the wrong storyteller. They're following a liar rather than Christ. For manslayers, jihadis, for whoremongers, again, if you understand Islamic doctrine, whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, kidnappers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to what? To sound doctrine. Sound doctrine leads to agape, out of a pure heart. Unsound doctrine leads to all these things. Therefore, don't let unsound doctrine creep into the church. Your job, Timothy, stop it at the door. And again, brethren, it's not the person. It's the fables in their head. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So that's the first point, brethren, is understanding how we should behave ourselves in the house of God begins with doctrine. 
because doctrine results in behavior. So we can say we want to have good behavior and then allow in false doctrine. It won't be long before that behavior goes out the window. And we're at each other's throats. And we're behaving in unseemly ways. As long as we keep the pure doctrine of Christ, as soon as we see unfruitful behavior, we can call it. Because that doesn't match Christ. And so we should all be driven by this agape love out of a pure heart. And if we have agape love out of a pure heart, we don't call people who don't have this understanding cockroaches. This, this is who we were before this understanding came to us. Instead, we desire to bring them into the law. We desire to take the gospel to them. We desire to better understand doctrine, true doctrine, so that we can teach it. In chapter 2, looking at these things that will help us understand how to behave ourselves in the house of God, in verse 1, he speaks of prayer. I exhort, therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, high priority, highest priority, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And so we heard Pastor Murray in his intercessory prayer praying for all men, not just the church. All men. That's what, this is how we behave ourselves. Again, agape out of a pure heart. Agape is for everybody. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his only begotten son, not to condemn the world, but to save it. And so as we follow Christ, we have this heart for all men. I exhort, therefore, therefore, it's a therefore. So because of true doctrine, which results in agape, therefore, as a highest priority, have supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks for all men. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. And again, I think Brother Gord in the opening prayer gave us an example of this, where he is praying about the condition of Canada, North America, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. We have work to do. The decisions that these people in power make interfere or could interfere with our ability to do our work. And so Gord was praying in a way that's asking God to enable us to continue our work. For this is good and acceptable. So these prayers that we heard today are good, and they are acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. It's not this uh, holier-than-thou, we're better than everybody else, and we're the in-group, and anybody who's not in our group, well, we just despise them. No, we're just, God has somehow in his wisdom made us first fruits. And as first fruits, we have the heart of God for all mankind who will have all men to be saved. That's God's will. He will have all men to be saved. Now, 
the men themselves may choose not to be saved. Some men are so corrupt that they are incorrigible. But that's not our business. Our, our business is to have the heart of God for all men. And he will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. Eventually, these people are, a lot of these people are going to look back and say, I don't know how I could ever have believed these things. As, as we have, we've all looked back and said, you know, I used to think this, I used to believe this. Now, now I understand. Christ has opened up my mind. But this is God's desire. For there is one God. There is one God. And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So people have trouble with this, but we understand there is one God. And then there's the mediator, Christ Jesus. But we also understand that Christ is God. We have to be careful about how we use words. So there's a class of beings called God. Christ is in that class of beings. We are going to be in that class of beings. So that's a, that's a kind. There's a God kind. Now, there's also a definition of God, which means supreme being. There can only be one supreme being, and that's the Father. So within the God kind, there's a supreme being. And all creation and all God kind will worship the supreme God. And that's what we see in 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul explains that God is putting all things under Christ. But obviously, in putting everything under Christ, he is accepted. He's the exception, which is putting everything under Christ. So God puts everything under Christ. Christ then brings everybody to God. So God puts every, makes Christ's name higher than everybody, puts every knee to bow to Christ. And when every knee bows to Christ, Christ then turns everything over to the Father, because the Father is the supreme God. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So just as Christ now has left humankind and is back in the God kind, he is leading us there as well. He gave himself a ransom for all. So, so this is, again, how we behave ourselves in the house of God, is to have the perspective that God has. And God's perspective is for all. Yes, there's a process. Yes, he saves Israel first. Yes, there's a first fruits process. But God's heart is for all mankind. And this, is, this must be our heart as we understand how we should behave ourselves. To be testified in due time. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. I speak the truth in Christ and I do not lie. So there are fables, but this is not a fable a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity. I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. So again, this this, um, attitude that we have toward those who are not in the body is not one of wrath. And no matter what happens, again, as we heard in the opening prayer, no matter how discouraging things may seem, We're not doubting. In fact, years ago when we said, ISIS is coming to Canada. And there were just this ragtag little group of people in the desert in Iraq. And we said, they're coming to Canada. And now they're here. And now we're going to see increasingly these types of attacks. But we must not doubt. We must not doubt the word of God. This is all part and parcel. 
of the prophecy's fulfillment. Okay, so these things that Timothy needed to understand, one was the importance of doctrine and the end result of doctrine. Good doctrine leads to agape. Once we understand that, the agape then manifests itself in how we pray. And there's a a call for public prayer. And so we'll have our our prayer meeting today. And this is exactly what Paul is saying. That the, the church should come together and pray and pray for all men. Not, ju- not just each other. Yes, we should prioritize the house of God, but we should have a heart for all men. In addition to that, the third piece that I want us to see from Paul's letter to Timothy in terms of these things that we need to understand to know how to behave ourselves is the need for structure. The need for structure. Paul emphasizes structure. And as somebody who came from a a broken family, I'm really sensitive to this. Uh, uh, And I guess someone who came from a broken family and then married into a stable family, I'm really aware of the contrast, of the instability that comes from a lack of structure and the stability that comes from structure. And I know, you know, uh, you know, clearly my mom, she was in charge when she was there. But she wasn't always there. She was a working mother. Uh, so a lot of times she wasn't there. And then it was just the kids, four of us left to ourselves. Well, my brother was oldest, but he had uh, mental problems. So he could not take on the responsibility of being the oldest. So I was the next male, but I had a sister who was older than me. So since she's older than me, she felt like she should be in charge. But with my personality, I felt like I should be in charge. And my youngest sister, well, her personality probably even stronger than mine, and she felt like she should be in charge. So it was unclear who's in charge here. And there was a lot of fighting and a lot of ganging up, three against one, two against two, one against three. It was just mayhem, lack of structure. And that carried on really all through our, even to our adult lives. When I look at my wife's family, where there was no upheaval, clear structure all the way, very clear structure, there's just a peace and a harmony and everybody gets along and everybody likes one another and everyone has figured out how to be together and look out for one another. And that's what structure does. The other example I have of the importance of structure is an organization that I was with uh, years ago called Toastmasters. Toastmasters has been running for like 100 years. And people come and go. Some of the leading Toastmasters are dead, and the organization continues. And one of the things you see when you get into the leadership there is the emphasis on structure. They are all about structure. It's all about structure. And so people come and go, but the structure remains. And a hundred years later, Toastmasters are serving people all around the world. And I think that's what Paul is saying here to Timothy. Don't allow the body to become chaotic. Ensure that there's good structure so that there will be longevity. 
And the first part he deals with here in verse 9 has to do with male-female relations. He says, in like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. So we should be praying for all men. And now he starts talking about women being modest with shamefacedness. You know, today, we've got women who will go on stage before tens of thousands, maybe millions of fans, sticking their tongues out, showing their bodies, moving their bodies in the most absurd and uh, immodest ways. This should never be in the church. Never. That there should be a modesty an understanding of uh, shamefacedness. It's a strange word. We don't, we don't, no, there's no such, this word would never be used today, to have shamefacedness. It means to be a bit embarrassed. You know, somebody says, oh, there's a part of your body showing, and you're embarrassed. You're, you turn red. It's like, I, I didn't mean for that to happen. Here, we've lost this. And sobriety. Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. So, again, back in the day at the time, uh, perhaps we can get the context that there were Jewish women that would have this sort of humility, and then there would be the Greeks, who are coming from a completely different culture, coming into the church, and they need to be told how to conduct themselves in a modest and godly way. And so we need to interpret that for our day today. doesn't mean you can't have braided hair. doesn't mean you can't wear gold. But we need to take the sentiment behind what Paul is writing here to Timothy. Instead, verse 10, which becomes professing, women professing godliness, having good works. And then he says, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. I suffer not, I don't allow a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So again, structure doesn't want the woman to usurp authority over the man. So the man should be in a certain position. He doesn't want the woman to usurp that. He is not saying here, again, we've we've studied this before, that a woman can never speak. That a woman must live her life in silence. And all men have the right to dominate women. Instead, what he's saying is, in the public service, it is a man that should do the teaching. So you'll see myself here, Deacon Jan, Pastor Murray, other, other ministers will come through. We don't have women teaching. Structural. It's structural. There's a structure to the church. We want to honor that structure. He says, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. So he takes it all the way back to the beginning of creation. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, was in the transgression. So he takes it all the way back to the creation of human beings to show There is a divine structure between the male and the female. And Adam and Eve were really symbolic of Christ and the church. And so there's a relationship that Christ has with the church, which is reflected in the male-female relationship. And we mustn't violate that structure. Verse 15, I, I don't have a clear explanation for, but we know that it's not, By women having children, that's how they're saved. There's something else that Paul is saying. We know that Christianity, the truth is not, we don't earn our way to salvation. So it's not, I had lots of kids, therefore I'm saved. But I, I can't really offer anything else there.
But in chapter 3, verse 1, he continues with this need for structure. So first he says, a woman shouldn't teach. Then he gives us the attributes of the men that should teach. Because the men that should teach, again, the structure needs longevity. If we put anybody in a teaching position, and then they're not qualified, well, first of all, false doctrine is going to creep into the church, and that's going to ruin the church's behavior. But secondly, that person is going to be found out, and then that person has to be replaced, and then that just creates a credibility issue and all kinds of disruption in the church. So women shouldn't teach publicly in the service. A man should. And it's a true saying that if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. It's a good thing that he wants. But a bishop then must be blameless, not flawless, but blameless, that he he conducts himself in a way that is honorable. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, able to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules well his own house, structure. So the household has to have good structure. And over time, in managing the household structurally with human beings that have their own minds, their own desires, their own strengths and weaknesses, you can't be this dictator that, oh, my house just runs like a clock. Because everybody does exactly what I say, when I say it, how I say it. And it's just so great. And everyone, you look at the house and everybody's depressed. That's not it. You want a household that's happy. People enjoy being together, but there's clear structure. And everyone enjoys the structure. Because if he learns that over time, that comes into the church. Paul wants structure in the church. And he wants men who understand how to have structure in a church or in a household. One that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man doesn't know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? So so ruling, he equates with taking care. So if he can run his household well, it means he's taking care of his household. And then he can take care of the church. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. So again, Paul is very concerned about the structure of the church. He goes on to say he has to have a good report of those that are outside. And he says that the deacons also must be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of, fi- of the faith in a pure conscience. They have, a, they have a role to play as well in running the household of God. And so once they're approved, then they can use the office. It's, it's an active, uh, participating role. They have, a, they have a role, our Deacon Jan in our congregation with his wife, They have a a role in the structure that they use. It's active. And again, he shows the attributes of a deacon very similar to those of an elder. For they that have used, 
uh, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. So they're figuring it out as well. Again, everyone, these are real human beings in the household, and they're figuring out how to manage the household. And then that, those, that understanding is beneficial to the church. They that abuse the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So these are the scriptures or the passages that lead up to Paul saying that if he's delayed, if he's not able to get to Timothy in time, at least he has these things. So then he knows how he ought to conduct himself in the household of God. The prophecies are coming to pass with increasing frequency. It's getting to the point now where what was shocking years ago is ho-hum today. Oh, another human being made in God's image was slaughtered, was beheaded. Can you pass the sugar? Change the channel? It's, it's commonplace now. Years ago, I sat down with my family in London, and I tried to warn them. I was shocked. When I went into London, I just saw how much it is changing. And I tried to warn them what, what was surrounding them, because they were right in the middle of it. And I've got to say, uh, I was laughed to scorn. I, I was laughed to scorn. I actually had to sit down with my brother-in-law and say, what would it take for you to actually say, maybe I have a point? And he just kept saying, my point was preposterous. There is basically, I said, there must be something. And I pushed and I pushed and I pushed. And finally he said this, okay, civil war. If there's civil war, then I'll believe you. Well, the UK is heading to civil war. And in fact, my, my other brother-in-law, who was not vocal at the time, he just sat and listened. He called my, my wife yesterday and he said, this is exactly what Adrian said to us. So he was humble enough now to say that what Adrian said is now happening. My sister-in-law says that when she walks the street now, she has to walk sideways so she can just look around her. So years ago, they were just, hey, there's no problem here. Now they're recognizing there's a problem. And I, you know, they're in grave danger. They're in grave danger. They are right in the midst of it. But we should not be discouraged. We should not be discouraged. Rather, we should be encouraged. We should be encouraged. And, and we should be able to answer the question, what manner of persons ought we to be? I can remember as a young man, kind of 12 years old, I was a thief. I might have told you this before. I was a thief. And I just discovered that when I had money, I had friends. And so I kept stealing from my mother. I found out where she kept her purse. And at first, I would just take a little bit. And then you get bolder. And you take more and more. And uh, I can remember one day, I, took, I probably took a $20 bill. 
and there was as a result we couldn't eat that night my mom had no dinner for us i think she put something together for us and she didn't eat and the, for the first time i saw the consequence of what i was doing but i couldn't stop eventually i got caught it wasn't uh, it wasn't a good day i got caught and i was severely punished I would say uh, my mother beat the thief out of me. <laughs> she really did. Uh, and, I, and I thank her so much for that. Like, I turned around. Not only did she beat the thief out of me, she took me to the police station. And, and they put the fear of God in me. So I don't know if they orchestrated this whole thing, but that police officer treated me like a criminal and warned me of what would befall me. And then she said to me, you know, your mom is doing her best. Why don't you help her? Maybe you could wash the dishes. Maybe you could just help around the house. Give her a hand. I just thought, what a novel idea. I had never thought of that. And between my mother beating the thief out of me and this police officer giving me some direction to say, this is how you could be, I changed. I, I, I cha- in a moment, I changed. And I was, uh, I can't, you know, self-praise is no recommendation, but I was a good son. I worked hard. I, I, whatever my mom asked me to do, I did it. I was very faithful. Anytime she gave me any money, I was very faithful in carrying out whatever she asked me to do, and I would return the change and count it out for her, and I was very reliable, more so than my siblings, so that she would always send me. And I think that that was in response to what manner of person ought I to be? when that question was put to me. And I think that's, as we look at the world unraveling around us, let's ask ourselves this question. On a personal level, we should have a personal vision of the kind of Christians we should be. But also, let's come back to our vision. Let's come back to our roadmap and ask ourselves, what manner of persons ought we to be collectively as we build this congregation. And let's take heed to our doctrine. Let's really participate in our collective prayers. And let's be concerned about structure and that we honor the structure so that we have stability. And I think as the world unravels around us, we will have that confidence that we are doing what pleases God and he's with us. Let's conclude in Second Peter 3, where we started. All of this evil that we see around us is down to covetousness. It's down to evil hearts wanting for themselves, the lust for power, the love of money, the desire to inflate the self. But we understand where this is all going, and we understand there's a new world coming. In 2 Peter 3, we'll conclude here in verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, What manner of persons ought we to be in all holy conduct 
and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. You know, we have these moments when we are imprinted. And, and one of these moments for me was when Pastor Murray gave the sermon on girding up your loins. I've been in the church for decades, and I've heard, I didn't know what it meant. Now I know what it means. And this is the state of readiness we should all be in, that our loins are girded. We're ready to, we're ready to run, and we're ready for battle. Just, just give us the signal. This, this is the state we should be in as a congregation. Our loins are girded, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. It's coming. No one, people don't believe it. We know it's true. Wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved. There's going to be a new heaven. Everything that we see now in the heavens, there's going to be a new heaven. This, this, these heavens shall be dissolved, being on fire, purified. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, knowing that we serve a God who never goes back on his word. So nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. Let them have this earth. Let them knock themselves out. It's all temporary. We're looking for what's permanent, and the new earth is permanent. Wherein dwells righteousness. There will be no wickedness in this new earth. When God the Father comes down, there will be no wickedness. There will be no evil. Just righteousness forever. Therefore, beloved. Therefore, beloved. Seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you, that we, may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org. Thank you.